This podcast is part of our Rare Diseases series. The team at 4D thought it would be a good idea to produce this series to support physical therapists treating patients with rare diseases. We hope you find this information helpful. Please reach out with any podcast ideas or suggestions by emailing neurodddsig at gmail.com. Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Disease Special Interest Group. I'm Katie McGraw, a physical therapist, and I serve on the DDSIG podcast team. Today, we're talking about progressive supranuclear palsy, otherwise known as PSP, and also referred to as an atypical Parkinsonianism as part of the DDSIG Rare Disease Podcast. I'm here today with Heather Cianci, who is a senior physical therapist at the Dan Aaron Rehabilitation Center, which is part of University of Penn's Parkinson's Disease Movement Disorder Center. And she's also a member of the Interdisciplinary Atypical Parkinsonisms Clinic. We had the pleasure of talking to Heather um, about her work within the Interdisciplinary Clinic. And we have the pleasure of talking to her today as she's graciously agreed to come back. Welcome, Heather. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, it's great to be back. Thank you so much, Katie. So I have now, I can't believe it, but in 2024, I'm going to have been a physical therapist now for 30 years. Almost all of my time has been spent in movement disorders, specifically with Parkinson's disease and the atypicals. Like Katie said, I had the pleasure of talking to um, this gang about the wonderful interdisciplinary care that our team provides, Um, not unlike a lot of different centers that are around the globe. um, Some of you may actually be on an interdisciplinary team for the atypicals, so I hope that you're here to learn more about that today. Um, We're really passionate about the care that we provide, and we love to share our knowledge Um, And in that vein, I am also the co-coordinator for the Parkinson Foundation team training program and part of the PT faculty there. So um, we really see it as our role, not just as clinicians, but also as really providers of good clinical um, evidence-based care that you can give your patients. Because we know sometimes it can be really tough to synthesize all the research that's out there and then how do I apply it to the clinic? So I really hope that today you'll be able to take home some really nice nuggets of um, clinical care that you can impart to your patients. That's great. And just to put a plug in, the Parkinson's Foundation is going to have an atypical conference Yep. Yep. So for any of you who have graduated from Parkinson Foundation team training, um, please know that we do offer advanced team training, and that is going to occur next fall, um, 2024, and the topic is going to be on atypical Parkinsonisms. Now, prior to that, if you're interested, through the Learning Lab on the Parkinson Foundation website, we actually have an atypical podcast series that's going on right now where you can um, listen along and learn some great information and then stay tuned. Um, We're going to have a virtual conference coming up. So you can really kind of pick and choose um, from a uh, smorgasbord of educational opportunities if you're interested in learning more about the atypicals. That's great. Yeah, I hope to listen to the podcast and be involved. So um, I was very excited to see that come through. So I think one place that we can start is trying to understand what we mean by atypical Parkinsonism. That's a great question. I think people have 
maybe knowledge about that we used to call it Parkinson Plus, meaning that it sort of looked like Parkinson's, but they had some extra things that were going on. Um, as we've moved forward in research and just in our clinical practice, um, the name has changed to atypical Parkinsonisms because they truly are not just Parkinson's plus other syndromes. Um, they can be caused by different problems in the brain that are different than those that occur in Parkinson's disease. Um, so what I wanted to kind of give you was just a little um, idea of how that goes. When we look at somebody who has Parkinson's disease and we're seeing that there are red flags, things that probably shouldn't be there so soon in the course of the disease. I think that's a great time for therapists to kind of think about, is this an atypical? So the atypicals can fall into two sort of categories where they're called proteinopathies. One is a tauopathy, which is what progressive supranuclear palsy is that I'm going to talk about today. And then the alpha-synucleopathies, an example of that would be multi-system atrophy. Um, and these are just misfolding of proteins in the brain that really do affect um, a lot more, more quickly, motorically in the lives of these patients. Where our people with Parkinson's disease, we don't see the falls and the gait instability um, and those cognitive changes till later in the course. Those are things that unfortunately we see much earlier in the diagnosis of the people with the atypicals. Yeah. And I can think with the importance of trying to get these early referrals for people with idiopathic Parkinson's disease, someone coming in, maybe just at the diagnosis or within a few years. And these are, you're saying these are things that in that initial conversation, if you hear these, um, that these are red flags that it might not be Parkinson's disease. Exactly. And, and one of the big problems that we have, Katie, is that Unfortunately, most of the people with the atypical Parkinsonisms, um, they are not diagnosed until they might be in the mid stage of the disease um, because of difficulty in finding care, difficulty in being diagnosed, perhaps seeing multiple doctors um, and perhaps being misdiagnosed. So yes, if they have that diagnosis of Parkinson's, but you're seeing these other things, perhaps especially with PSP, um, vertical gaze palsy. If you're noticing that people are having lots of falls early on, they tend to be falling backwards. Um, and you're seeing a lot of behavioral changes early on. Um, the sooner we get to these folks, the better. The research that's out there says, really, we don't see them soon enough and we don't see them frequently enough. Um, and there's just so many reasons why that's problematic for these folks. You know, I had a colleague who was a great mentor and she said, if someone is falling on the stairs early in Parkinson's disease, she's like, you might suspect PSP because of the vertical gaze palsy. And it was like so early on in my career, but it was, you know, it's things like that, that I hope to get in today with you so that, you know, the listener's going to take those away, um, kind of listen for that kind of language. So they might not say I have trouble with my eyes looking down, but there are these circumstances that you're listening for that um, would lead you to, to consider that. Yeah, where they're they're tripping over things excessively. You're finding that activities that they normally could do, you know, even six months ago have now become much more difficult. Parkinson's disease just does not progress that quickly, like the atypical. So even if you saw someone and you treated them for quote unquote Parkinson's, and perhaps they came back within six months, maybe for a tune-up or reassessment to see you, and you're noticing many more falls, like you said, falling backwards on the stairs. Typically, people with Parkinson's do great on the stairs, right? Even our folks who are like, wow, I, I have freezing and I have shuffling. But when I get on the stairs, boy, I can just fly up and down them. That's not the case for the folks with PSP because of those issues with ocular motor control. So how often compared to Parkinson's disease are people getting an atypical diagnosis like PSP? 
Um, right now, the research is showing that it's about five to six people per 100,000. Um, it is very, very rare. PSP is the most common of the atypicals, um, but even in that diagnosis, those folks have probably been misdiagnosed several times. And by the time, if ever, that they get to a movement disorder specialist, like I said before, they're already behind the eight ball. All of these problems are already starting to happen, um, which can make it much more challenging for us as physical therapists because we want to get our hands on these folks right away. And I can talk a little bit more um, as we go through about you know, the limit in the research that we have, but there are some studies out there that support the sooner we get to these folks, the better. Um, mm -hmm. And we've got to figure out how, how do we make this happen. And I think some of the other emerging terminology are these subtypes of PSP, which was new for me in the oh, last yeah. few years. Yeah. Um, and so maybe we can touch on those in case you have a patient that comes in and says it a certain way, just so that you have some working yeah. knowledge. Like yeah, the, the thing that makes these diagnoses even more difficult, if you take something like PSP, they have different phenotypes. Um, so there's kind of classical PSP, which is called Richardson's disease, and it's named after one of the physicians um, that originally came up with this and diagnosed it. And those are the folks that have loss of the vertical gaze quite early and have the falls backwards. But then you have people who have PSP Parkinsonism, and that sort of looks like Parkinson's for a very long time. And they might even respond very well to the anti-Parkinsonian medications like Cinemat or some of the dopamine agonists. Um, there are folks who have something called pure akinesia slash freezing of gait, where these folks, the rigidity, the bradykinesia, the hypokinesia, the freezing of gait is just off the charts. And that is clearly something that is much different than our folks with PD um, early on. And then you have folks who have more of a frontal dysfunction. Um, so we're thinking about personality changes. We're thinking about changes with executive functioning, um, the ability to kind of take in new information and synthesize it and figure it out. And then believe it or not, cortical basal syndrome can also be seen as a subtype of PSP. So you think about all these atypicals that are out there, PSP and you have CBD and MSA, but then now we're saying CBS, maybe a subset or a phenotype of that where those folks um, tend to have more of an asymmetrical presentation where they have more of an apraxia um, or different things on one side of the body versus with the PSP, it's truly on both sides. So you can see why it's so challenging really for these folks to be um, diagnosed because it can look like a lot of other things for a long time. Yeah. And I think as we kind of keep the conversation going about treatment, I think patients change visit to visit or change, you know, month to month. And so there's a lot of symptoms that people can experience. And so trying to be ready, right, for recognizing them and knowing, is this my wheelhouse? Is this something I'm treating? Is this something that I'm referring out? Just kind of feeling confident that you you have a kind of a higher level picture of what you can expect to see rather than I could see getting completely overwhelmed. Um, but I think what I find the most challenging, and I'd love to kind of hear your take on this, is about the prognosis um, and really understanding, you know, what that means in terms of what the patient understands, um, as well as kind of what we understand and how we take that information and kind of thread it through as we're working with these individuals. This is, can be a really challenging thing for a lot of people. Um, it's not a comfortable position to be in 
to speak with a patient and say, you know, the whole team has kind of said um, through our, our assessments of you, you're in the mid stage. I need to let you know that this, the prognosis of PSP is not good. It's a very short. Um, most people are pretty much incapacitated, wheelchair bound and need 24 hour help within eight to 10 years. Um, and that's difficult for us as therapists, right? Because we are always looking to keep mobility going, keep changes going. But again, like I said, we're kind of behind that eight ball when we're already sort of into the mid stage. Um, so one of the things that I and our team really kind of talks about is how are we approaching the information? We are approaching it with true honesty, with compassion. We try to anticipate what the family member and the patient's questions are going to be. Um, we always say, unfortunately, we don't have that crystal ball. We can't say this is going to happen at this time. What we try to do, at least in the therapies, is say, look, anecdotally, I can tell you that my folks who prevent falls, my folks who um, prevent choking episodes, who prevent um, aspiration pneumonia, my folks who stay as mobile as possible, I have seen them do well for longer than my folks who don't. So I don't typically give them the number of years. I think that's, you can find that online and you can say to people, I'm sure that you've read that this is the case, but I want to let you know that here are the differences within people who I think struggle um, and sort of maybe go downhill a little faster. And here's the difference between my folks who are going to do better for longer. There's a term out there called anticipatory grief. And I think that's something that a lot of folks um, may not be comfortable with talking about, but I think the loss of the ability to do those things, the loss of a partner, right? If you're the care partner, you're anticipating this snowballing effect of what's going to be coming. Um, so I think something that a lot of PTs could really help themselves with is if they could get more comfortable with talking about planning for the future maybe talking about palliative care, really bringing in the whole team. This is not anything that's comfortable to do as a solo practitioner. So I would always say, pull in your neurologist, pull in your social worker. If you don't have a team, see who you can get to out there. There are great resources available online. Um, and I can certainly share those with you so that, that people can see them if they want to have links um, to different organizations that are out there that talk about palliative care. And even um, in kind of doing my lit review, I came across a really nice article um, that talked about how do we talk to people and support them through neurodegenerative diseases. Now, this article in itself talked about Parkinson's disease and glioblastoma, right? Much different than what we're talking about today, but I think it gave some nice nuggets of wisdom. So I would probably say, Katie, it's got to be the honesty about what you know and, and what you don't know with those patients, because we don't want to provide false hopes. Um, we don't want to lead people to think that that everything is going to be okay with this. We want them to know it's going to be a challenge, but at the same time, we're here, we're supporting you. Let's see how we can make this work together as a team. That's you. That's what stuck with me on your podcast before was like this, like true honesty in this, trying to be upfront, like patients want the information to be like, there, there are going to be falls. Let's work on getting up from the floor. Um, let's talk about, you're saying like trying to avoid aspiration pneumonia. Here's why. And then it's like a referral to speech. So I think what I'd like to do is start to get into when the patient arrives. So maybe going through when you get the referral and you know you have someone coming in with PSP, because I mm -hmm. think this prognosis conversation is going to come up a few other times as we keep talking about um you know, the relevance and trying to get the patient a bit more on board with taking these resources in and acting on them. 
Yeah, I, I think what probably one of the first questions that I ask my patient is, what is your understanding of this diagnosis? Tell me what you understand about it. Um, what did the doctor provide to you? And where else did you go to find information? So guiding people to really reputable sources, I will give a just shameless plug um, for Cure PSP. It's just psp.org, um, a wonderful resource center, not only for patients, but for care partners, for allied health professionals. Um, I think when your patients come to you with not even a good understanding of what it is that they have, we're already kind of off on the wrong leg. First thing first, we've got to level the ground. We've got to know what we're coming from, where we are and what we're doing. Um, there's research out there that shows that these care partners and the patients, if they don't hear the same information from the same people several times, it doesn't, it doesn't kind of become meaningful and it doesn't stick for them. Mm -hmm. um, so again, uh, I've got a great interdisciplinary team. People who are listening here may not have that. So that may fall to that physical therapist to every time they work with that patient to re-educate them to say, did you go to that website? Were you able to watch that webinar? Let's talk about again, um, what your understanding is. So once I think patients have a good understanding of what it is, then I go right into sort of my flip-flop mode where I'm like, okay, now let me tell you why coming to physical therapy is one of the most beneficial things we have out there. We don't know truly what the cause is. We truly don't have a cure. We don't have adequate medication, right? What we do have are the rehab services. So I talk to them about what is out there and how the exercise can be helpful and how the training is going to be helpful. And again, with that healthy dose of Yes, we're going to have some falls, but let's talk about how we can decrease the amount of falls. Yes, you're probably going to need more supervision at home. You're going to need some more cueing because there might be recall issues. But how do we make this work with your family, with your care partner, um, with whoever is helping you? Um, unfortunately, these atypical Parkinsonism, Katie, they take away the independence agency and autonomy of these patients very quickly. Um, so I do a lot of questioning of my patients of what do you want to work on today? What is something that you want to still be able to do today? How are you feeling about what you're dealing with? So it's not just motorically, it's quality of life, it's depression, it's apathy, it's anxiety, it's it's withdrawal from life. Um, so I think PTs have to be really comfortable. Um, and I think the world in general is getting better out there about talking about mental health, but it's something that um, you might be talking about with your atypical patients um, much more soon than you would with somebody with Parkinson's disease. I interrupt you real quick. That's okay. So, because going back to that, when patients come in and, and leading, I think that's such a wonderful question about like, what do you know? What do you understand? What did your 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 neurologist say? Um, because I found that patients aren't informed and the information that they're getting from the neurologist is, well, they told me I need to do aerobic exercise and that's going to improve my symptoms. And so I feel like for some conversations, I'm starting off in a completely different space and I'm, I tread careful, you know, I want to develop my own relationship with this patient, but, um, how have you handled situations like that? Yeah. You sort of play that supporting role, um, as well as the lead role, don't you? Because again, like you said, you feel like you're the gatekeeper. I oftentimes feel that way where I'm sort of guiding even from the basic standpoint, um, because people are like, okay, great. I'm supposed to exercise. Well, what he told me to go take walks or the doc said I should, should be on the bike. You got to back up and we're almost going back to like the basic guidelines of 
what's considered aerobic exercise. What are the guidelines that we can follow about that? Um, the research is great in that it shows that what care partners and people with PSP are really looking for is for someone to ask them about what is their prior level of exercise, what's their knowledge with that, and see if you can grow off of that because there are so many barriers, right? If you're somebody who's never exercised in your life, it's going to be much harder um, to, to kind of get up and go and start now, especially when you already have a movement disorder going on. Um, so, you know, the facilitators to doing this is education, 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 um, trying to find access for these folks to other people other than us, right? They need community health instructors, sometimes personal trainers. Um, there isn't a great PSP exercise group out there. So I'm trying to talk to my people about, I don't care what it is, an older adult sit and be fit. It's an aerobic exercise class. It's um, something in the water, right? It's, it's aquatic exercise. So, you know, basically taking those guidelines that we have through the American um, College of Sports Medicine and sitting down and saying, this is the number of days a week you should have. This is the amount that you do. Um, and then really taking from that information and making one program for that one patient. So, Katie, it's not like everybody with PSP does the same exercises, right? It's what is going to be specific for that patient themselves. So after screening things like their knowledge, um, you know, their current exercise habits, prior habits, interests, um, what are some other things that you feel like are important to discuss or assess in that initial eval? Mm -hmm. um, quality of life is a big one. There actually is a PSP quality of life rating scale. Um, you can also use the PDQ-8 that we use in Parkinson's disease. Um, so just understanding where that person is just within their life. And then th there are no specific assessment tools, right, for people with PSP. So we're using anything that we would normally. I've got to assess gait. I've got to assess balance. I've got to assess any kind of functional motor task. The thing that I think maybe most, and I'm going to say most PTs, but a lot of PTs may not be looking at is the visual, like the ocular motor mm -hmm. um, difficulty that these folks have. And that plays an, an, just an entirely different role in what it would in other neurodegenerative diseases. So you talk through like what your exam looks like for that and maybe what you expect to see someone within a few years of the diagnosis versus someone like you're saying, who's coming in at kind of more of a mid-stage. Yep. yep. Um, so I remember what you said that your mentor sort of said to you, if you see somebody falling back on the steps um, early on, it's probably not Parkinson's. And I had a mentor who said to me, when you see the face of somebody with PSP who has lost that visual ocular movement, you never forget what that looks like. Um, so I think with time, you start to get a feel of what people look like. So people with PSP, you're looking at how often are they blinking, okay, versus some people have blepharospasm. So if people's eyes are closed very tight for a long amount of time, I'm looking at that as well. So I'm actually people, I'm ha having them, you know, open the eyes, close the eyes. I'm also looking at gaze. So I'm testing especially vertical gaze because early on um, in the disease, unless it's somebody who's like very classical, right? That Richardson's, they lose it right away. But these folks have very slowed vertical gaze. Um, with time, they lose the ability to have that vertical gaze at all. And they're really just locked in. Um, so I'm looking at that. I'm looking at, um, you know, making them look at different visual targets, right? So I'm looking at also, um, different ways of getting these folks as they're moving. I'm looking at anticipatory eye movements. Um, this is also something if you 
have a team. Um, you may have the OT be the one who's taking a look at these visual changes. Um, but you have to look at, um, it's called the doll's head response, but that, that vestibular ocular um, response there. If someone, you know, our eyes should be able to stay in the middle. I should be able to, you know, move my head and my eyes are going to stay fixed on that object. Our folks with Parkinson's have the opposite, right? If you're constantly telling someone who's in those mid to later stages with Parkinson's, oh, well, your problem is, is you're missing objects on the floor. You need to look down. Well, you need to assess that because it may be that they're actually taking their head down, but the eyes are doing the opposite. They're going into the upward gaze. Um, so I think the visual screening is going to be a big part of that. Um, just in the back of your mind, one of the things is just command following, right? Um, how are they able to hear my commands, take what I'm saying, and then impart it into what they're doing? Um, and then recall also. So we're doing some testing with that. I think probably our OT and our speech pathologists do a little bit better job um, than the PTs do with that. So again, if you have that team, that's going to be the thing that's going to be most helpful for you. Um, but definitely, Think about the vision. Think about any of those kind of visual tests. If you're not up on them, um, there's lots of great information that's out there for you. Um, and then just to go back to what you're saying about cognition. So things that you're screening for um, include things like recall, um, attention. Yep. Is there anything else that you, is there a test that you specifically do? Or are these more kind of at an observational level? These are basically observational. Um, sometimes our OT will do things like the trails test. Um, the MOCA, again, there's nothing that's specific for cognition within PSP. So we're looking to some of the other things that are out there. Um, impulsivity and safety awareness. So asking people um, if they've had multiple falls and I'm talking to the care partner and I'll say, you know, where did the falls happen? What happened? Um, asking that patient, you know, did you realize that when your husband said, I need you to stay sitting in that chair, I don't want you to get up, wait until I come out of the bathroom. Did you feel like you were safe enough to get up and go on your own? And when the patient says to me, yes, absolutely. That shows me that some of that insight, that that safety awareness is not there. So it's basically not an actual um, tests that I'm doing, but it's all of those things in together while I'm I'm talking to them essentially. Um, but yeah, feel free to use any of those cognitive measures that are out there. I would probably say that your uh, MOCA is probably going to be the best for them. Okay. Um, and if a caregiver spouse were to ask, what are some of the cognitive changes that come with PSP? What can I expect? What? Would, how would you answer that? So that impulsivity, the decreased safety awareness, and then bradyphrenia, so slowness of thought. It takes people with PSP much longer to think about what they're going to get out and how to get that out. Um, and I think one of the most difficult things, Katie, is apathy. Um, these folks, we're trying to motivate them, right? Here we are saying, come on, it's time to exercise. It's time to do all these great things. And they have no motivation to do it. There's no drive. There's no kind of um, resolve in there to make that happen. And that can be probably one of the most frustrating things, I think, for the care partners, which just adds to that overall burden for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like you're saying, it, it is easy with experience to recognize when someone is um, not acting appropriately and has that tendency for impulsivity. And there's people who, you know, yeah, they're type A their whole life. They've always gone fast, but this is a different kind of fast. This is yeah. a different kind of safety situation. Um, I would say for somebody like that, I don't just say it to them. I show it to them. Let's go to the Cure PSP website. Let's see that it talks about impulsivity. Let's see that it talks about problems with executive functioning. Let's see it in writing and let's talk about it again. 
You know, the website itself is just so well organized. Um, and I think that's one piece that you're highlighting that's so important is like, if you can get comfortable navigating the websites, knowing what resources, what page of that pamphlet, it just helps with that kind of ease of confidence to know that I can bring this up and then, yeah, you can kind of support yourself um, and give the patient a resource to go home with so that they can take it in later. Exactly. Um, and then one other topic that I want to talk about is the speech changes and how speech therapy can help because, you know, there can be complications with swallowing um, that could lead to getting getting pneumonia and having this kind of exacerbation of their symptoms. Um, I'd love to touch on kind of what some of the speech changes um, patients experience. Yeah. So, and again, it's very variable, um, sort of like the gait. Um, but dysarthria and dysphagia happen quite early. Um, there's actually some research out there that says people, um, as the symptoms of freezing of gait get, get worse, so does speech mm-hmm. Maybe because there's mm-hmm. similar pathways, um, that, that are, are there. It absolutely gets worse with time, but early on, you can have people who are actually very hyper with their speech where it's very rapid, very hard. The articulation is not there. Um, you will have other people where it's more garbled. It's more kind of hoarse and jumbled. Um, again, a lot of variation with that. It's, it's really important though, if you can, and again, I have a speech pathologist right there on site, um, to get them into speech sooner rather than later. I always think like speech before PT, like, like we can't have these people choking. We cannot have this aspiration pneumonia. So um, getting them out into the community if you don't have a speech pathologist there. And then working with, if if they're not able to communicate verbally with you, we have a lot of people, you know, it's the thumbs up, that's the thumbs down. We're using simple things with just letter boards with pictures, those kinds of things. And also I find in just talking with the care partners, what are you using at home? Um, oftentimes you will have people who say yes when they really mean no or vice versa. So getting a good handle on that from the care partner as well. Um, but you know, to be able to communicate with someone is just of the highest priority for these folks because they have so many needs, so many fears. Um, and I really push them to, to share that with us. So yeah, I wish I could say I have the answers for that, but it's really get your speech language pathologist involved sooner rather than later. Totally. Yeah. I'm always like, nice to meet you. And I need you to also meet my colleague next door, but we'll get there. <laughs> like, it's like, exactly. we plug it the whole time. Um, so let's dive into some treatment options and treatment approaches. Um, because there is, we've talked a lot about what to expect for patients with PSP, but, um, you know, I'd love to know your treatment approach for someone who's newly diagnosed, um, within a reasonable time frame versus someone coming in to mid to later stages. Yeah. Um, there is a fantastic article that is out there right now, um, done by a team of physical therapists at the NIH. Um, and again, I can, I can share that information so that you can get it out to folks. Um, and there, it's one of the first ones that's out there that talks about a highly functioning patient. Um, although this patient in the, in, it's a case study, they talk about how, um, they had been diagnosed for 11 years, but it was probably the Parkinsonian PSP. So it was kind of a little bit slower. Um, and I love how they put this article together. So I want to talk a little bit about what they did and how we've sort of already been doing some of those things in our clinic. Um, one of the things that you have to know about these folks with PSP, um, anticipatory postural, um, responses, protective balance reactions, all of that stuff will get worse over time. 
So what we need to do is we need to challenge these people before it becomes a problem. So all of my people with PSP, we are starting them on weight shifting. And we're not just talking about weight shifting AP, right? Front to back, because we know that they're falling backwards. Um, for, for you to have a good anticipatory postural adjustment to take that step, right? We've got to shift that weight leg, shift the weight over to one leg and do the other where your PSP people sort of just move without thinking. So anything you can do with folks in that position um, with the weight shifting. The other thing is the protective balance responses. So yes, having them have things that are kind of coming at them out of nowhere. Someone walks out of a room, you're alcohol with them. They have to make the reaction. Um, I'm laughing because I've seen videos of your clinic and you guys have the most creative space with um, obstacles and people and little hallways and music and everything. So, um, but describe that a little bit more in terms of like what that treatment looks like if you're trying to do a bit of more of a surprise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we we have to plan ahead, right? So I'll have to say to my um, front desk staff, do you mind going into the treatment room one? And when you hear us walking down the hall, can you just walk out? Um, sometimes I will carry balls in my pocket and I will throw a ball so that it crosses in front of the patient. Um, I will make sure that I have something, maybe a dowel from something that I'm using. And as I walk by, we drop it down. So it's in the way, that kind of thing that can be really helpful. Um, just making my phone go off really quickly to make a loud sound. So somebody has to jump and react, those kinds of things. Um, and then, you know, sometimes just letting people know, you know, we're working on things. I love the balance beam pad where it's kind of beveled. Um, so that folks, most of the time you put them on when they want to sit right back down. And I try to say, look, we're going to work on, can we take that stepping strategy, but we're doing it in all multi directions. So, um, that's one of the big things that's out there. This, this article also talks about the fact of, you know, we've been using for years and, and this comes from Chris Zampieri from an article from, I think the early two thousands, maybe, I don't know, 2005 and eight where she and her team were talking about, hey, we ought to be exercising the eyes just as much as we are the rest of the body. Um, and through her work over the years, really trying to tailor that into things. So we do a lot of stuff. My new exercise du jour, um, and I know my partner in crime, Joel, and at work will be like, Heather, I'm so sick of seeing you do this exercise, but I love it, is I'm having people stand on an unsteady surface. And then I take post-it notes and we put letters on the wall. And the patient has to make their, they're spelling words, but I need to see the eyes go to those actual targets. And then we do another task. We throw a ball, we step on, we step off. Um, and in this, this recent research with Zampieri, they did stuff where they had people um, doing boxing, where they had to do target training. Um, they had people stepping on boxes, stepping over boxes, and then they did stuff on the treadmill. So, I mean, easy things in the clinic, like we're using post-it notes, we're using laser beams, um, where I will have patients look to where the laser is. You can take them into a dark room and follow that. Um, any kind of picture cards, right? People just looking at the, the um, what's the suit on this card? What is the color on this card? And having them track. Um, I think it's important though that you don't do them in just isolation, have them doing it motorically, right? What do we need? We need the eyes. We need the anticipatory kind of scanning. We need people to be able to see what's coming up, right? To be able, a lot of people, like you said, they're falling because they don't see what's there, right? On top of that poor foot clearance because they're not taking a large enough step. So having people look at different things, it's not just always down. It's not just always up. So I think that's a great thing. If you can add in that, it also makes it much more fun, Katie, right? Like people are like, this is fun. I'm having a good time. It doesn't feel like just a workout um, and, and be as creative as you can with that. 
So it sounds like, you know, these treatments are designed to address those visual deficits, those eye movement deficits. And are, do you find that patients, I don't know, it'd be hard to track, but like, do you find that they like improve? I don't know if that, that's not really the right word, but that their awareness maybe of the, of the strategy. That's exactly what you said. It's sort of like the awareness of it. Um, I also look at the number of trips and falls. So we talk to people, not just about falls, but about near misses um, too. So in tracking that, so I'm sort of extrapolating, okay, well, if your, your vision is not getting worse and you're a little bit more aware of it and maybe you are tracking downward more, maybe that's the reason why we're not having so many falls. So it's sort of an extrapolation from that. But I do find my folks, if again, if you get them early and you start this, and this is easy stuff to do at home with looking at cards, with putting post-it notes on the wall, playing Scrabble on the wall with care partners. Again, it's not this rote boring stuff that people sort of sometimes associate with home exercise programs, right? I'm not sitting there and telling them to do a long arc quad. They're not doing their bicep curls. They're not doing their quad stretches. Like, like this is something I can do at home that's sort of fun and engaging. So that's the big thing because it doesn't matter what we do in the clinic. If we can't get these folks to have the repetition and the compliance at home, we know that they just don't do well. You know, I can see the patient or caregiver asking, is this going to make my eyes better? Is this going to improve? And how would you address that? I say sometimes in the short time it can, if you are compliant enough. Will it stop the overall progression? No, it will not. But can I buy you some time? Probably. That's a nugget. I feel like that's a good nugget for people to have because that you do these treatments and then, you know, patients want to know what what's the goal? What are we doing? Yeah, why am I doing this? What am I getting out of this? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that's different than someone who's in the mid to late stages who's already locked in. You're okay. going to have to compensatory strategies with those folks. Okay. Definitely probably not going to see improvement in that case. And, you know, this might be hard to answer or to know exactly, but um, when you say locked in, like how much of a loss of eye movement would you only do the compensatory versus at what point do you feel like there's, there's a goal for remediation? When you get to the point where if the head goes up, the eyes go down, when that's happening, definitely the compensatory strategies, because you just, you can't do anything once that reflex is too suppressed. Um, and, And I talk to people in the early stages, right, about how that can work, how you can look down and we want that gaze. But when you see that that, so I'm constantly testing that just simple things with having people track and moving the head and doing those tests. Um, At that point, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a, a story about somebody who we had who was really, um, really challenged. And what was happening was when he was walking with his walker, of course, if you're turning, you want to look where you're turning. He would turn his head to look in that direction, but the eyes would be going in the opposite direction. Um, and, And that's where we were having freezing, we were having falls. So with this gentleman, and it was only through the, the, the help of the care partner is he literally needed to stop. He needed to turn his head. He needed to think about turning his eyes. Then he would take a step. So it was slow, step by step. A fluid movement was no longer possible. The Mm -hmm. compensatory strategy was step by step by step. And did it take longer? Yes. But were we falling less? Yes, right? And that's the ultimate goal. I always say to folks, you are going to have to learn to take your time with this. Time management is going to be something that's really important. Um, To rush somebody with PSP is just not safe. So let's move on to mobility training, like walking transfers, yeah. mobility, kind of touch stair training, touching on what you, what your expectations for treatment are and what the research is saying. 
So, you know, you don't want your patients to read the research because I mean, just two quotes here that I took because it's just, it's, it's actually sad how little research we do have. Um, it says robust evidence for improving balance and gait in PSP was not found for rehab studies. And that's a Faye Horak study at a 2023. But don't, don't be dismayed out there, PTs. Um, it's because we just don't have enough research. And the research studies we're doing are completely different from one another. And they're, they're not, they're just, they're not giving us what we need. I extrapolate from what's out there. What can I do? And what have I seen anecdotally in the clinic? A lot of people with PSP, when they go to get out of a chair, have something called the rocket response, where they just shoot out of the chair, okay? That comes in part from that decreased self-awareness, decreased safety judgment, those kinds of things. So I think primarily it's let's start from kind of base one, how do we safely get out of a chair and then just stand there, put in that comma. We're not getting up and just starting. So it's really getting people to break down things. So repetition, repetition. I can't tell you enough. Task specificity is key. You've got to go over and over again the right way of getting out of a chair. Once they get it and you see that it's sticking and they're also doing it at home, then go ahead and take the challenge up. For some folks in those middle to later stages, you're not going to be able to do that. It's just the constant repetition. Be honest with folks. There are some folks who are not going to have that recall to be able to do it on their own and they need errorless learning, which means constant verbal cueing. And that comes from the care partner. And that can be very frustrating. But again, teaching them, it's sort of like if someone with Parkinson's has a tremor, that's part of the symptom. People with PSP don't have that insight into doing it safely. You need to be that external cue for them. So quality of getting up, pausing, and then that ability with walking. Um, there is no one device that's the best one out there. Um, what kind of the consensus is that's out there. And when you look through lots of different articles and blogs and posts is that a walker that's heavier, right? I think for years we've been putting weights on the front of walkers to kind of offset. Um, I think the U-step walker can be a good one. Um, the U-step that that's said with a grain of salt, because it does have a narrow, foot placement area. And if people can't figure out where those feet are in there, there's a lot of scissoring um, that can also happen with folks with PSP. So this is going to be your clinical judgment as a clinician. There is not one device that's better than the other that's out there. So, um, and, and it's not just quality of walking. I also think it's length of walking. We got to get people moving more in general, more steps per day. What kind of key changes do you expect to see in someone with PSP? Yeah. Um, so they kind of have, you'll see in the literature, they use this kind of term and I don't like it, but it does. It's sort of a drunken sailor is one of the old ones that's out there. You see people that are kind of all over the place. There can be a lot of scissoring, um, freezing of gait early on. It happens much faster in PSP than it does in PD. Um, very narrow base of support, um, not a good clearance of the foot too. So that same kind of smallness, right? The smallness and slowness that comes with Parkinson's. Um, but there's just that that reaction is not there with these folks. So a lot of times I'm saying to people, I, I may be at a point in the course of your disease where I am not improving your balance, but I am trying to prevent you from falling by doing the compensatory techniques. Um, once again, it all depends where they are. So um, getting people, I think, to see also, and we talk about this sometimes with Parkinson's, is they're not kind of aware of how they're moving. So we do use a lot of video in our clinic where we show people and I'll say, what do you see? What are you noticing as you're walking? Um, you know, let me point this out to you. Do you see this difficulty here? This is why I want to work on this with you. Do they, do they say that they see it? 
Sometimes they do in those later stages. They'll say, that looks fine. I've always walked like that. I never took a big step. I never did that kind of thing. So again, it goes back to the sooner we can see them, the better. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to be Pollyanna here. There comes a point in most of these people with PSP where they will be wheelchair bound, um, mm-hmm. where they are going to need 24 hour supervision. Um, but if we can, again, you know, I try not to give up on anybody, even in those middle and late stages, I try those devices. We need to have them standing. We need to have weight bearing. We need to see, even if we're working on just stand pivot transfers, just to make life easier for that care partner, um, that ability is just so important. Yeah, I think the the gate is just hard to predict to know what you're going to see because there's so much variability. I think with like typical Parkinson's, you know what to expect in terms of that like asymmetry and decreased arm swing and shortened step. Um, you know, there's some uniformity that way. But with PSP, because like what you've described, you have freezing and impulsivity, and there's there's not a one way that people are coming and walking. And so, yeah, trying to address their gait issue that is also an overlay of their cognitive issue um, is tricky. And one thing, Katie, that I neglected to mention before is, you know, don't wait until your patients are already having a fall to work on getting up from the floor. I mean, that is a great test just in um, what is their balance? What is their power? What is their strength? Um, One of the things you should start right away is teaching patients how to safely get up from the floor um, because it's going to be more challenging as they progress through the disease process. So again, that's an early nugget that you should do. Um, You know, one thing that uh, we haven't touched on are the urinary symptoms, which always to me comes into gait and trying to get to the bathroom on time. And so um, help our listeners know how to either screen for that. Um, and in some, some ways you've had some success in helping manage, um, a more dry situation for the patient. Exactly. Um, get yourself a good pelvic floor therapist. (laughs) If you're able to, we're really lucky we have somebody. So I don't deal with it as much. Okay. But a good pelvic floor therapist is going to be amazing. If you don't have one, you need to find somebody out in the community that you can refer to. Um, we do, we ask about, Um, how often people are going to the bathroom, how often, especially they're getting up in the middle of the night. We ask if people are restricting water um, because you know that's what patients do. And then what happens? We get dehydrated. We have problems with blood pressure, all of that. Um, So those are common questions that we're asking people. We ask people, do you get to the bathroom on time or are you having accidents? Um, That kind of thing. So just in the basic course of things, it's, it's modulating when they're drinking throughout the day. It's talking about not not drinking, but what's the appropriate amount. Um, and we also talk a lot about a toileting schedule. So go before you think you have to go. Don't wait until it's it's the you know worst case scenario um, because that's when the falls are going to happen because we know anybody who needs to go to the bathroom is going to think about the bathroom and not how do I safely get to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things you can do also is if you can separate the patient and the care partner is talking to them about that. Um, mm-hmm. they, they might have more insight and they might feel more comfortable. Sometimes the patient is going to be, quite frankly, quite embarrassed mm-hmm. um, to talk to you about that. But we talk about, you know, the use of products. Um, There's a lot of great products that are out there. It's not just a giant depends anymore. People live in fear of this kind of adult diaper. There are wonderful kind of pads that are out there. Um, Even for gentlemen at night, the Texas catheter, there are female um, devices that are out there. It's not just a urinal for men anymore. There are female urinals that are out there. So um, if you haven't looked at some of the devices that are out there, you could just even do a Google or go on Amazon. There's some great incontinence care products um, available and that are pretty reasonable for people. 
Heather, we always ask everyone what they like to do for fun. So what is it that keeps your keeps you busy when you're not doing this amazing work? Right now, it's having a senior in high school and getting ready for college. Um, whether you want to call that fun or stressful, <laughs> I'm looking forward to his future and what he has um, to accomplish and out there. That's really, we're spending a lot of time doing that right now. So I would say family. Heather, thank you so much for today. It has been so informative. Um, and of course, we're going to keep the open invitation because I'm sure there'll be something at some point soon that we'll want to bring you back and kind of pick your brain in. But I know this is going to help so many clinicians, me included, um, really be able to treat our patients with PSP well um, and compassionately and really feel empowered to know that we can do it. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. And that's, that is my hope that people feel more comfortable in working with these folks. And I love that word that you said, compassionately. Um, such an important piece of what we do. So know that there's people out there to support you and help. So this is a great podcast for people to be able to find that information. So thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. Special thanks to our guest today, Heather Cianci. This podcast was produced by the ANPT Degenerative Disease Special Interest Group. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. This podcast was edited and produced by the DDSIG podcast team, which includes Parm Paget, Sarah Zoller, Chris Burke, Shannon Brown, Jeffrey Schmidt, and Vanaco. And I'm Katie McGraw. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. This is going to be a great blooper. Don't worry. I'm Katie. Oh, shoot, Heather. I need your background. I need your title. <laughs> Unmute. Who the hell are you? Yeah, I'm like, wait. I right? And you're like, oh my gosh, it's Faye Horak. She knows her stuff. And if she's synthesizing the research and she can't find it. Lots of good schools in Boston. You doing any college tours up here? We did. We looked at BU. Yeah. He didn't. He liked BU over BC. Oh, perfect. Yes. Sarah, can I see DJ again? <gasps> Is there a baby? Who's home with the baby? Yeah. Sarah's home on maternity. <laughs> oh, how old? He's just turned three months today. Making his podcast debut. (laughs) I know. Oh, it's CJ. Yay. (laughs) And Minaco, Ken Bianco, Bianco. Just say, just say Ken Minaco. We'll cut it in.